0: thank you that it is well with our souls tonight Lord we are here in your house we are your people Lord we have nowhere else to turn but to put our eyes on heaven Lord and to put our eyes on Jesus the author and the finisher of our faith Lord we could sing it is well with my soul tonight because Jesus we are your people and you love us you call us by your name you call us Christian Christ one Lord, you've written our names in the Lamb's Book of Life, and you've said I will never leave you nor forsake you even to the end of the age. Lord, help us in this time of trouble. Help us in this time of fear and anxiety and worry, Lord God. Uh, Rampant deception, rampant delusion everywhere we turn, Father. Misinformation and misdirection purposefully sent out to try and confuse your people, Lord. Have mercy on us, Lord. We are just sheep, Lord. We're so easily misled. So, Jesus, we know that you are the author and the finisher of our faith. You began it, and you're going to finish it because you promised that you would. Be with us tonight, Lord. Bless us, Lord. Fill this place with your Holy Spirit and speak to us through your word. And bless your people, Father. Please continue to protect us from all danger and all evil. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you'd like to open up, we are in Isaiah chapter 22. We're back in Isaiah tonight. Haven't uh, been in this expository chapter and verse study for a few weeks now. I know you got to watch my pastor last week. You got to watch Pastor Chuck Smith here and uh, on, on video. I, I I had lost my voice last Monday night. I was really, really kind of... Uh, suffering from laryngitis, although it wasn't from sickness. I just talked too much, I guess. So I I, I wouldn't have been all here on, on Wednesday with my voice. And so I took took last week off so I'd be able to uh, teach on Sunday. And I know you had Pastor Bob here to introduce the, the video last week. And so that's special for both Pastor Bob and I because Pastor Chuck was was our pastor and he ordained me. And Uh, his his teachings are still profound, even though he's been gone now for about six or seven years. He's been with Jesus, uh, but his teachings are still so powerful. So I've entitled this message, The Valley of Vision, where in Isaiah chapter 22, we left off last time in Isaiah 21. That was the last chapter we covered here. And we're coming to the end of this series of, of oracles or judgments against the various nations surrounding judah um, including babylon including assyria including israel the northern tribes of israel there were oracles or judgments that were um, spoken by god he gave these prophecies to isaiah isaiah wrote them down and then of course we've been looking at how the various judgments have been fulfilled some of them are still yet future some of them speak of the tribulation period Uh, and the judgment against the revived uh, Babylon, city of Babylon, etc. But this is um, a judgment against, actually, not against one of Israel's enemies, but this is a, a judgment against God's people, against Jerusalem, and therefore against the nation of Judah. So we read here in Isaiah chapter 22, verse 1, the burden against the valley of vision. What ails you now, excuse me, that you have all gone up to the housetops, you who are full of noise, a tumultuous city, a joyous city. Your slain men are not slain with the sword, nor dead in battle. All your rulers have fled together, they are captured by the archers. All All who are found in you are bound together, they have fled from afar. Therefore I said, look away from me, I will weep bitterly. Do not labor to comfort me because of the plundering of the daughter of my people. Now historians and Bible commentators are not sure if this is speaking of uh, the Assyrian siege that occurred in approximately 701 B.C., Um There were many sieges that took place in the city of Jerusalem throughout their history. And so it would seem that Isaiah had a specific siege in mind, that he was actually watching these things happen. But then God was also showing him the future destruction of Jerusalem by Babylon, when Nebuchadnezzar would come and just obliterate the city. You remember the Assyrians came... Uh, under Sennacherib and the Rabaksha and they came and they threatened the people and they had 185,000 soldiers and they were surrounding the city of Jerusalem and the people were uh, just crying out to God. They had nowhere else to turn. And then an angel from the Lord went out and wiped out 185,000 of the Assyrian soldiers. Just wiped out their whole army that were on their doorstep. That were surrounding the city with their armies and besieging them. Um, And so It's it's likely that this was the time that Isaiah was writing this. It would have been, again, around 701 uh, or 702 B.C., but it's not just that siege because they ended up winning that siege in the end. They didn't lose the city of Jerusalem that time. God delivered them from their enemies, but about 100 years later, they would be again besieged by Nebuchadnezzar and his powerful Babylonian army, and they would be wiped out, annihilated, or carried away captive. Uh, And it was a terrible, terrible siege. They turned to cannibalism and all the rest when they were besieged that time by the Babylonians. And so it's kind of like God is showing Isaiah uh, not just what he was dealing with with the Assyrian siege, where they would be victorious ultimately, but also uh, when the uh, city of Jerusalem would be destroyed. Who knows? Maybe God was showing him when the Romans were going to besiege the city in 70 A.D., 66 to 70 A.D., the Romans besieged the city uh, of Jerusalem, and once again wiped out the city and killed all the people, a bunch of people. Uh, Josephus tells us a million people were, were killed, Jews were killed, by uh, Titus, General Titus, who was uh, would go on to become the emperor uh, of Rome uh, during the siege of Jerusalem in 70 AD. There's going to be another siege that's going to happen still in the future when the Antichrist comes uh, at the Great Tribulation uh, period. And so uh, it is a very uh, common theme for the history of Judah, and especially the history of Jerusalem, to be attacked by enemies and to be besieged by enemies. And so here Isaiah is is seeing this siege, and he has seen the response of the people, and he's he's kind of perplexed by the response of the people. It says, the burden against the valley of vision, verse 1, what ails you now that you have all gone up on your housetops? Now in Jerusalem to this day, especially um, in East Jerusalem, when you get into the Arab areas, you'll see that people still go up on their housetops to this day. It's something that they do. They live in sort of like um, rock houses. A lot of them, there's uh, buildings that have been there for forever. And they go up on their rooftops, and that's kind of their lounging area. That's where they'll have gardens, and they'll have trees and plants and things like this and flowers and from certain parts of Jerusalem you can look down on other people's rooftops uh and it's kind of like their common area especially when it's hot in the summer they'll go up there in the evenings and have dinner and so forth and so um he's seeing that the people he's up on a high place the valley of vision perhaps uh he's up at uh mount scopus there on th- by the all uh, uh the mount of olives on the eastern mountains looking down on Jerusalem, uh, but he's he's got this vision of the people. They're all going up on their house tops, and he says, "You who are full of noise, a tumultuous city, a joyous city." He's perplexed. They're they're celebrating. They're 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 having like a feast. They're having like parties up on top of their rooftops as they are surrounded by their enemies. And he's just uh, it just breaks Isaiah's heart because they're not turning to God. They're not humbling themselves and seeking the Lord. Uh, And and the the prophet's heart was broken because he knew uh, ultimately that they were going to be destroyed because God was showing him uh, uh, the future. And and eventually the Babylonians would come and besiege them and just completely wipe them out and carry them away captive to Babylon uh, for 70 years. He says in verse... In verse uh, 3, well, verse 2, You who are full of noise, a tumultuous city, a joyous city, your slain are not men slain with the sword, nor dead in battle. Verse 3, all your rulers have fled together. They are captured by the archers. All who are found in you are bound together. They have fled from afar. And so um, initially when the Babylonians did besiege, and Nebuchadnezzar did besiege, Uh, the city of Jerusalem, in around 600 B.C. uh, It fell in 586 B.C., actually. The city fell to the Babylonians in 586 B.C. They were carried away captive. But the rulers had all tried to escape. Uh, The ruling class, the, the, the ruling families and so forth, the political leaders, they tried to escape and sneak out like a back way, and they were captured by Nebuchadnezzar and by the Babylonian armies. In other words, they didn't get away from their enemies even though they tried to sneak out um, your rulers have fled together. They're captured by the archers. All who are found in you are bound together. They have fled from afar. But he's saying, even though you're trying to escape, uh, you're going to be captured. And that's what happened uh, uh, with the Babylonians. He says in verse 4, Therefore I said, look away from me. I will weep bitterly. Do not labor to comfort me. Because of the plundering of the daughter of my people. He was seeing the future suffering of God's people. And he was weeping. And he was inconsolable. Uh, It must have been hard to be a prophet. Because God showed the prophet such great detail. You remember Jeremiah Jeremiah was the weeping prophet because God showed Jeremiah the destruction that was going to come upon his people. And nobody would listen to the warnings. He was crying out day and night, Jeremiah, and nobody would hear him. And he was warning them, telling them to repent, turn back to God, stop playing church, he told them. Uh, In Jeremiah chapter 7, you know, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the people were saying, and yet they were only going to synagogue on Saturdays, and the rest of the week they were going after other gods, and they were partying, they were living for themselves and worshiping the false gods. And and the prophets saw the judgment of God that was coming uh, upon the nation, and they would weep, and their heart would be broken. As a matter of fact, Lamentations, the whole book of Lamentations, is the lament of Jeremiah uh, where he's lamenting and he's weeping about the judgment that's coming upon the the people of God there in Jerusalem. For example, in Lamentations chapter 1, Jeremiah says this, How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow she is, who was great among the nations. The princess among the provinces has become a slave She weeps bitterly in the night. Her tears are on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. Judah has gone into captivity under affliction and hard servitude. She dwells among the nations. She finds no rest. All her persecutors overtake her in dire straits. The roads to Zion or Jerusalem Mourn because no one comes to set the feasts to the set feasts. All her gates are desolate, her priests sigh, her virgins are afflicted, and she is in bitterness. Her adversaries have become the master, her enemies prosper, for the Lord has afflicted her because of the multitude of her transgressions. Her children have gone into captivity before the enemy. And from the daughter of Zion, all her splendor has departed. Her princes have become like deer that find no pasture, that flee without strength before the pursuer. In the days of her affliction and roaming, Jerusalem remembers all her pleasant things that she had in the days of old, when her people fell into the hand of the enemy with no one to help her. The adversary saw her and mocked at her downfall. Jerusalem has sinned gravely. Therefore, she has become vile. All who honored her despise her because they have seen her nakedness. Yes, she sighs and turns away. Her uncleanness is in her skirts. She did not consider her destiny. Therefore, her collapse was awesome. She had no comforter. O Lord, behold my affliction, for the enemy is exalted. The adversary has spread his hand over all her pleasant things. For she has seen the nations enter her sanctuary, those whom you commanded not to enter your assembly. All her people sigh. They seek bread. They have given their valuables for food to restore life. See, O Lord, and consider, for I am scorned. Is it nothing to you, all you who pass by? Behold and see if there is any sorrow like my sorrow, which has been brought on me, which the Lord has inflicted in the day of his fierce anger. From above he has sent fire into my bones and it overpowered them. He has spread a net for my feet and turned me back. He has made me desolate and faint all the day. The yoke of my transgressions was bound They were woven together by his hands and thrust upon my neck. He made my strength fail. The Lord delivered me into the hands of those whom I am not able to withstand. Verse 15, the Lord has trampled underfoot all my mighty men in my midst. He has called an assembly against me to crush my young men. The Lord trampled as in a winepress the virgin daughter of Judah. For these things I weep. My eye, my eye overflows with water because the comforter who should restore my life is far from me. My children are desolate because the enemy prevailed. Zion spreads out her hands, but no one comforts her. The Lord has commanded concerning Jacob that those around him become his adversaries. Jerusalem has become an unclean thing among them. The Lord is righteous, for I rebelled against his commandment. Hear now, all peoples, and behold my sorrow. My virgins and my young men have gone into captivity. I called for my lovers, but they deceived me. My priests and my elders breathed their last in the city while they sought food to restore their life. See, O Lord, that I am in distress. My soul is troubled. My heart is overturned within me. For I have been very rebellious, outside the sword bereaves, at home it is like death. They have heard that I sigh, but no one comforts me. All my enemies have heard of my trouble. They are glad that you have done it. Bring on the day you have announced, that they may become like me. Let all their wickedness come before you, and do to them as you have done to me, for all my transgressions, for my sighs are many, and my heart is Faint, and so it's almost like Jeru- Jer- Jeremiah is speaking as the city of Jerusalem personified. Uh, he felt the pain, he felt the anguish. His heart was broken, uh, and the people uh, were completely um, cut off from God. They had they had pushed God too far. God says my spirit will not strive with man forever. They had crossed the point of no return where there was no saving them at this point, this nation of people. You remember that God even told Jeremiah, do not even pray for these people anymore, Jeremiah. I'm not going to hear your prayers. Their judgment is about to fall. Their sin has reached heaven. And even Jeremiah the prophet could not intercede and plead with God. Although he did plead with God and intercede with God for many, many decades. uh, The Lord forestalled his judgment upon Jerusalem. But in the end, they didn't want to hear the word of God. They didn't want to hear the prophet of God. They didn't want to hear anything other than those who were going to tell them exactly what they wanted to hear. Those who would tickle their ears. The false prophets. How sad to see the unnecessary suffering Uh, of God's people, because they won't turn back to God and be saved. They won't cry out to God for deliverance from their enemies. It reminds me a lot of the nation that we're in today, guys. It reminds me a lot of America. Um, You know, we're we're one of the few churches that are open, and look how few come to church. You're here, praise God, and we're going to be here whether anybody is here or not. But you would think as the world is falling apart and our economy is collapsing, that the church would be filled with people seeking God, with just Christians whose churches are shut down, and they're tired of watching streaming services and streaming church services, that they'd want to come in person and fellowship, as you are here tonight. And yet, uh, most people are not turning to God here in our country at this time. Many Christians are not humbling themselves before God Many Christians in their theology think that everything's going to be fine, everything's going to be okay, everything's going to go back to normal. Um, And we know from the Bible that things at some point are never going to go back to normal once the last days kicks off and the birth pangs of the woman get closer together and the baby comes, the labor pains of the woman. And then uh, it's going to be seven years of tribulation and three and a half years, the last three and a half years, will be the great tribulation and there's going to be no stopping it once it comes. And I believe that we are living in those times. We're getting closer and closer to those last days that the Bible predicted would be the case Uh, before Jesus Christ comes back for his church. But how few there are today who are seeking the Lord. How few there are who are crying out to God for his mercy and for his grace and for his comfort. And they're turning to man and they're turning uh, to politicians or they're turning to uh, governments or they're turning to newscasters or whoever it is that they or even entertainers are turning to anyone who will tell them something that they want to hear and they're not turning to God the God who could save us from all of this and it's such uh, it is such a tragedy again they were partying on their rooftops they were not crying out to God they were not uh begging God for for forgiveness and 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 fasting and praying and 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 you know Tearing their clothes and putting dust on their head, which would, would have been a sign of humility before God in the culture. They were partying. Again, verse 1, he says, You've all gone up to your housetops. You were a full of noise, a tumultuous city, a joyous city. Uh, we read in verse 11, he says, You also made a reservoir between the two pools, or between the two walls, for the water of the old pool, but you did not look to its maker. Nor did you have respect for him who fashioned it long ago, and in that day the Lord God of hosts called for weeping and for mourning, for baldness and for girding with sackcloth, but instead joy and gladness, slaying oxen and killing sheep, eating meat and drinking wine. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Then it was revealed in my hearing by the Lord of hosts, surely for this iniquity there will be no atonement for you, even to your death, says the Lord God of hosts. So instead of humbling themselves as a nation before God, as their enemies were besieging them, besieging them, they were partying, they were eating, they were drinking. Uh, and they were fatalistic, saying, uh, you know, que Sarah, what will be, will be. If we're going to die, we may as well die partying. Let's eat and drink and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And, and the prophet's heart is broken because the people are not seeking the Lord. They're not turning to the one who has the power to deliver them from their enemies. He continues back in verse 5. For it is a day of trouble and treading down and perplexity by the Lord God of hosts in the valley of vision, breaking down the walls and of crying to the mountain. And so it's a day of trouble that's coming that God is showing him, this vision of the future uh, and this treading down and this perplexity. He says in verse 6, Elam bore the quiver with chariots of men and horsemen and Kir uncovered the shield. It shall come to pass that your choicest valleys shall be full of chariots and the horsemen shall set themselves in array at the gate. And so again, God was showing uh, Isaiah what was coming. Uh, Elam is a city in what would become Persia in, in the Assyrian Empire at that time. Persia was part of the Assyrian Empire at the time of Isaiah. And Elam was uh, a city, a major city east of, uh, in East Assyria. And so he's saying these are the people who are going to be coming. These are the people who are going to be filling uh, the valleys with chariots and horsemen, um, besieging you at the gate. Again, verse 7, it shall come to pass that your choicest valley shall be full of chariots. The horsemen shall set themselves in array uh, at the gate. And we read in Isaiah 37, Isaiah 37 and 38 deal with this in in some detail. In Isaiah 37, verse 1, we read this about when the Assyrians did come and besiege the city of Jerusalem. Isaiah 37, 1, and so it was when King Hezekiah heard it that he tore his clothes he covered himself with sackcloth, and he went into the house of the Lord. Then he sent Eliakim, who was over the household, Shebna the scribe, and the elders of the priests, covered with sackcloth, to Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos. And they said to him, Thus says Hezekiah, This day is a day of trouble and rebuke and blasphemy, for the children have come to birth, but there is no strength to bring them forth It may be well that the Lord your God will hear the words of the Rabaksha, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to reproach the living God and will rebuke the words which the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. So the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah, and Isaiah said to them, Thus you shall say to your master, Thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid of the words which you have heard, with which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Surely I will send a spirit upon him, he shall hear a rumor, he shall return to his own land, and I will cause him to fall by the sword in his own land. So because Hezekiah was a righteous king, Hezekiah was a good king, he was a wise king, he did seek the Lord when the enemy did come and fill uh, the valley with their horsemen and with their chariots. Uh, Not so later when Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians uh, were were there surrounding uh, the city of Jerusalem. Back in Isaiah 22 and verse 8. We read he removed the protection of Judah. You looked in that day to the armor of the house of the forest. So it's interesting. He's saying here that in the time that Judah fell. So again, this is not talking about the Assyrians. Because they sought the Lord during the Assyrian um, siege. And the Lord defended them and, and, and conquered their enemies. But later... With Babylon they did not seek the Lord and so they were conquered by their enemies but he's saying he removed the protection from Judah he's taken his hand of protection off from over you and it is a very dangerous thing when the Lord removes his protective covering from a nation or even from a person who claims to be a child of God who, who is a child of God oftentimes You know, we put ourselves into positions where we are no longer abiding in Christ. We're no longer sticking close to the good shepherd. And that's when bad things happen. We need to stay close to Jesus. We need to keep close to Him. And if we're close to Him, if we draw near to Him, He will draw near to us. But if we don't want Him, and we don't want to be close to Him, and we push Him away, and we go our own way, we're going to end up in dangerous territory. We're going to end up with wolves. We're going to end up Uh, with lions. You know, think about the picture of the sheep, the sheep wandering from the shepherd. It's a very dangerous thing. The sheep may drink from a polluted spring and die, get sick and die from polluted water. The sheep may eat some poisonous grass and get sick and die. The sheep could be eaten by a pack of coyotes or a wolf or a lion. The safest place for the sheep to be is right by the shepherd. And so, you know, people who really leave the Lord. They walk away from the Lord because they don't want God's rules over them. They don't want God's word in their life. They don't want to surrender to the Lord. They think that they could do it on their own, do it their own way. Oftentimes that's when they end up in trouble because they've left that place of covering. They've left that place of safety. And we know that there is uh, an example of a righteous man who had the a protective covering of God removed from him and you saw what happened to him that man was called Job and we read uh, in Job I think this is a very good example of what Isaiah is talking about about that hedge of protection that covering that God puts over his people Job chapter 1 and verse 6 says this now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord And Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? That there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. So Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge or a covering around him and his household and around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on his person. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. And so it was, Job did not walk away from the Lord. He did not abandon the Lord. He did not do anything wrong. This was a test that that Job was going through that he had no idea that there was this heavenly scene that God was boasting about him. God was pointing him out because he was such a righteous man. And Satan, who is the accuser of the brethren, uh, came and accused him before the throne of God. And the Lord allowed Job to be tested, but he gave Satan limits on what He would be able to do but the first thing that satan said when god was pointing job out satan says well yeah but you can't let me you won't let me get to him no wonder why job is such a righteous man because you blessed his socks off job was one of the richest men of the ancient world of this time according to uh the historians he was a very wealthy man perhaps even a king uh around the time of abraham and uh, it's believed that Job is actually the oldest book that's ever written in the Bible. It was actually written prior to uh, Moses writing, believed to be written during the time of Abraham. And uh, Job was a wealthy man. Job was a rich man. He was also a good man, and he was like a king. He was, he was a ruler uh, in the land. And, and, and so Satan was telling God, well, you know, no wonder why Job serves you. Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not put a hedge around him, his family, all of his possessions? In other words, I can't touch him. You've put a hedge of protection around him. And so there's a key there for us. Um, I believe that God will keep a hedge of protection around his people so long as we're sticking close to Jesus. Job was a rare example where the Lord allowed Job to be tested. He removed his hand of protection through nothing that Job did, but just to prove to Satan that Job would not deny his name and that Job would not curse God and that Job would continue. Although he didn't understand what was happening, he did not deny the Lord. He did not blame God. He did not curse God. Uh, In all this, Job did not sin Uh, with his mouth against the Lord, it says. But it's a very, very scary thing to see the power that the enemy has when God removes his hedge of protection. And it's not just with individuals, it's also with nations or with cities, like the city of Jerusalem or the nation of Judah. In Psalm 32 and verse 1, we read this beautiful prayer uh, of redemption, this prayer of uh, repentance and forgiveness from David, King David, after he had sinned uh, with uh, Uriah the Hittite's wife, Bathsheba, and his the baby uh, died, and, and David was so heartbroken, and it was really uh, David's own fault. David took another man's wife and then murdered her husband, and the judgment of God was coming upon him, even though he was a man of God. He was a man after God's own heart. He was the king. He was the one who the Messiah would come through his seed, and yet... Um, he had turned away from the Lord and he was suffering as a result of it. But he turned back to God. Psalm 32 verse 1, David says, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones grew old. Through my groaning all the day long, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. So while he was in sin, while he was rebelling against God, he was suffering. And truly, any child of God that is a true child of God, you will not get away with going after other gods or going into sin because the Lord will discipline you. Because Hebrews chapter 12 tells us that the Lord disciplines his own children. And if you don't get disciplined when you go off into sin, if you lie, cheat, steal, and do all these things and get away with it your whole life, you're not a Christian. Because if you were a Christian, your life would be a living hell. You would be made miserable in your sin, as was true for David. Because the Lord loves us enough to chastise us, to punish us, to chasten us in order to bring us to repentance so that we can get right with God. And then God puts the pieces of our lives back together again. And this is what David is saying. He said when he was in sin with his adulterous affair with Bathsheba and Uh, plotting the murder of Uriah the Hittite. He says, My bones grew old through my groaning, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned uh, into drought of summer. And so like he was just dried up spiritually. He was worn out physically. He had no peace because he was in sin. And yet he says, When I acknowledged my sin to you, and my iniquity I have not hidden, I said I'll confess my transgressions. Then you forgave, The iniquity of my sin. For this cause, everyone who is godly, verse six, shall pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely, in a flood of great waters, they shall not come near him. You are my hiding place. You shall preserve me from trouble. You shall surround me with songs of deliverance. And so, for the child of God, you need to come back to God. If you're living in sin and your life is a mess and you're miserable and you can't find peace or joy in the things of the world, you need to repent and you need to come back to the Lord and he will heal you and he will forgive you. There's always consequences for our sins. David, uh, the sword never departed from David's household as a result of his sin. And he had a lot of trouble and heartache, but God had forgiven him and restored him because he did acknowledge his sin before God and he repented before the Lord. And then God tells him in verse 8, the Lord says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye. In other words, the Lord wants to be our leader. He wants to lead us uh, into uh, quiet uh, pastures, green pastures and still waters. He's our good shepherd. He, he will lay down his life for the sheep, but we have to be willing to follow him. He wants us to obey him, to follow him. He says, I'll instruct you, I'll teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye. Do not be like the horse or like the mule, which have no understanding, which must be harnessed with bitten bridle, else they will not come near you. Many sorrows shall be to the wicked. But he who trusts in the Lord, mercy shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous. And shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Many sorrows indeed for the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord will find mercy. And the Lord says, uh, don't be like a stubborn animal that I have to put a bit and a bridle like into your mouth like a stubborn horse or a stubborn donkey to hurt you, to take you in the right direction. Uh, the Lord could either just lead us and we could obey his word on our own or He can use the rod of his discipline to spank us and to chastise us uh, to get us back on the straight and narrow path. It's always our choice, and oftentimes we are the ones who bring this uh, trouble upon ourselves. But for the one who is walking closely to the Lord, who's sticking close and abiding in Jesus, there's all of these promised protections and blessings and the covering of God. We read in Psalm 34, in verse 4, David says this, I sought the Lord and he heard me and he delivered me from all my fears. They looked to him and were radiant and their faces were not ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. Verse seven, the angel of the Lord encamps all around those who fear him and delivers them. You see that? The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. That's your protective covering. That's how God protects his people. Because he's there with you and you're with him. In verse 8, he says, "O oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. And blessed is the man who trusts in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. There is no want to those who fear him. The young lions lack and suffer hunger. But those who seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. And so, so much there in the scriptures for us uh, about abiding in Christ. As a matter of fact, Jesus tells us in John chapter 15, to abide in him. He says this in verse 5 of John 15. This is to you and me, New Testament to the Christian. He says, I am the vine and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. Or apart from me, you can't do anything. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, so that you will be my disciples. So the key is abiding in Christ. Sticking close to Jesus, not departing from him, not going after other gods, not abandoning the Lord, not forsaking your daily walk with Jesus. This is a daily thing, guys. It's not once a week or twice a week. We have to put God first in our lives every single day. And we have to confess our sins. As soon as we're convicted of sins, we need to confess those sins and ask God to forgive them and to search our hearts, examine us. And, and he will, he's faithful, and he's just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But we have to be those who are seeking God, who want to be close to the Lord. He says in verse 9 of John 15, As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And so we love God, we fear God, we abide in his love, and we desire his word in our lives. We don't rebuke his word or reject his word. We desire, we're the people of his word, we keep his word, we keep... uh, he says, those who keep my, my father's commandments uh, is, are going to abide in my love, even as I kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. And then we're going to have joy. The joy of the Lord is our strength. In 2 Corinthians and chapter 6, we are told to not have any fellowship or harmony or harmonious relationship with unbelievers as believers, because that's very. A dangerous thing for us, very dangerous for us to be associated and affiliating with unbelievers as Christians. Now we have to be in the world but not of the world. We witness to unbelievers all the time. We're supposed to be a light in the darkness that they would see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. But Paul the Apostle says in 2 Corinthians six fourteen, he says, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Yoked up together with unbelievers, whether that's in marriage, in business, or you know with a roommate in college or whatever it is you're you start a business with somebody and they're an atheist or you know uh, they they have they're, they're a, a buddhist or a muslim or have some oth- some other belief or an agnostic and you're going to yoke up with them especially in marriage but in other things as well in other relationships as well um, it's always it's, it's a very dangerous thing to be yoked together with someone who is an unbeliever he says do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers." For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? Of course, there is no communion between light and darkness or between righteousness and lawlessness. He says in verse 15, And what accord has Christ with Belial or Baal? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them, and I will walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. And then chapter 7, verse 1. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, Let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh in spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. In other words, when you hang out with unbelievers, they are going to influence you in their unbelief, and they are going to cause you oftentimes to sin in ways you never would have sinned before. And so he's, he's exhorting us, he's encouraging us, he's warning us, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you and I will be a father to you and you will be sons and daughters. So to stay under the covering of the Lord, you have to keep yourself in check. You have to be wise as a serpent and harmless as a dove and not be unequally yoked to unbelievers. How many people's lives are destroyed because they're in the wrong place at the wrong time with the wrong people doing the wrong things and you sometimes you just can't get those mistakes back. The losses sometimes are permanent. So he continues back in Isaiah chapter 22 and verse 9. Verse 8 again, he says, He removed the protection of Judah, took off the covering over the city or over the nation of Judah and Jerusalem. You looked in that day to the armor of the house of the forest. So uh, as the Lord was removing his protective covering from them because they were idolatrous and going after other gods, really was the reason that God was removing his hand of protection from Judah. They were going to the armory in the house of the forest that King Solomon had built uh, with the cedars of Lebanon. where They apparently had all these weapons and all this armor that uh, Solomon had put there in the forest. And so instead of uh, really acknowledging their sins and repenting and turning to God, they thought that they were going to fight their way out. And of course, with the Babylonians, they weren't able to fight their way out. They lost the city With the Assyrians, there's no way they could have withstood the 185,000 Assyrian soldiers and fought against them. God came and fought for them uh, because they sought the Lord at that time when Isaiah was there and Hezekiah was there seeking God. So he says in verse 9, You also saw the damage to the city of David, that it was great. And you gathered together the waters of the lower pool, you numbered the houses of Jerusalem. And the houses you broke down to fortify the wall. You also made a reservoir between the two walls from the water of the old pool. But you did not look to its maker, nor did you have respect for him who fashioned it long ago. So they were making their preparations for war, but they weren't humbling themselves before God. They were turning to men who was telling them, you know, we don't really have to repent All we have to do is defend ourselves. All we have to do is build up our armaments. All we have to do is uh, hide, you know, the spring. It was actually likely referring to the spring of Gihon, with the time of Hezekiah, where they took the walls from some of the old Jerusalem, some of the old cities. Uh, and the old houses, and they began to take apart these houses and use the stones to fortify the walls of Jerusalem, which they did with Hezekiah when they were uh, besieged prior to the Assyrians besieging them, but in preparation for the siege of the Assyrians, they fortified the walls, they took apart some of the old uh, rock houses that were there outside the city walls to fortify the walls, and they hid the Gihon Spring, the upper spring of the Gihon Spring, so that the Assyrians would not be able to use that water or pollute that water. It was an upper spring that ran down, actually, to the pool of Siloam. Uh, and it's, it, it's an amazing thing, those of you who have been to Israel, who have been to Jerusalem, to see Hezekiah's tunnel. I've actually been into Hezekiah's tunnel. Hezekiah had engineers who took this spring that was outside the city walls, and they, they went through solid bedrock for 1,777 feet, this is back in 705 B.C. And they, one engineer with a pick and shovel started on one side from the inside the city of Jerusalem where the Pool of Siloam was. The other was outside. And they, they, they met. I don't know how many years it took them. Uh, but they, they drilled a hole through the bedrock in order to secure a water supply for the city of Jerusalem that the enemies could not stop up so that they would have water once they were besieged. And Hezekiah's Tunnel is still there today. I've been inside of Hezekiah's Tunnel. Uh, It's fun to go through it Uh, one time. I don't know that I would ever go through it again. It's really long. It's really dark. It's really uncomfortable. And you have water rushing through the whole time, kind of up to your knees, freezing cold water. It's so pitch black when they turn off their flashlights, you literally cannot see your hand in front of your face. And some of it is so short, you have to, like, crawl down. So you're, like, in the water almost... Crawling down because it's only four feet high uh, at some places, and then you come out in the pool of Siloam. It is it is unbelievable that they built this three thousand years ago with the primitive engineering that they had, and so forth. Uh, and so Isaiah is recognizing all that they did. He's saying, "You numbered the houses of Jerusalem. You uh, you know you gathered together the waters of the lower pool. You fortified the houses." Uh, or broke down the um, the houses, you fortified the the walls, you made a reservoir between the two walls for the water of the old pool. but you didn't look to your maker. and so this is the key. The key is is that we cannot save ourselves. Man cannot save himself. We always think somehow we're going to be able to save ourselves or we're all, you know, only God can save us. Only God can save us from hell, and only God can save us from the judgment that's coming upon, I believe our nation, as a wicked nation that has aborted over 60 million babies and, you know, run the rainbow flag and taught homosexuality to our children in the public schools and even uh, helped children to get abortions without notifying their parents. Uh, In high school and junior high, these girls are having abortions and the parents aren't even notified. This is an abomination before God and it's taking place right now in America. And it has been since Roe versus Wade. In 1973, the innocent blood being shed before God and then giving children hormones so that they could change their sex and 8, 910 year olds says they want to become a boy when they were born a girl or, or, or they want to become a girl and they were born a boy and, and the, the state is going to help them with the medical costs to change their hormones, to give them surgery so they could transition from a male to a female or vice versa. Uh, it's only God. Who can save America, guys? No one else is going to save America because I believe that the sins of America have reached up to heaven. Not just America, but the whole world. And that's when the time of the tribulation period is going to come. God's going to pour out His wrath upon the whole world at that time. But man cannot save us from what is coming. Only God can save us. And again, I'm sad to report I just don't see a great revival taking place in America today. I just don't see it. Maybe it's happening and I'm not aware of it. But, um, you know, the Lord is the only solution. He's the only hope that we have. He continues in verse 12. He says, And in that day the Lord God of hosts called for weeping and for mourning, for baldness And for girding with sackcloth, so the Lord was calling for repentance, for national repentance. He was calling for the people to weep over their sins and over their idolatry and the sins of their nation. uh, That He wanted them to be mourning. Over what they had done. Remember, they were offering human sacrifices, especially uh, uh, after um, the time of Hezekiah. Uh, they were still offering human sacrifices and worshiping other gods and killing their babies, uh, offering them to Molech and so forth. And they were not weeping for their sins, they weren't mourning for their sins. There was no shaving of the head, which was a sign of humility, or putting on sackcloth, which was a sign of fasting and seeking God and humbling yourself before God. This just wasn't happening uh, at that time. Instead, there was joy. There was gladness. There was slaying oxen and killing sheep. They were having a big feast. They were eating meat and drinking wine. It was a big party. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. So instead of seeking the Lord when they were besieged, By the Babylonians. Instead of seeking God, they just partied. They slaughtered the animals. They had barbecues and they had parties and they drank all their wine and they became fatalistic saying, well, again, you know, It's going to happen. We can't stop it. We may as well just have fun while we're we're all going down the tubes. And how many people uh, think that way? Actually, a lot of people do think that way. You know, if you found out tomorrow that there was an asteroid that was going to hit planet Earth, I bet you'd see people doing all kinds of crazy stuff you'd never see them doing otherwise. Uh, You know, thinking that our planet's going to be wiped out by an asteroid or something. Um, people would probably tr- do the same thing, turn to partying and drugs and alcohol and, you know, one last final big party uh, before the whole thing comes crashing down. It's like on the Titanic that they struck up the band after they'd hit uh, the iceberg or whatever, you know, free booze and free food. Go ahead and eat all you want and we're going to strike up the band and get drunk because the, the ship is sinking and we don't have enough lifeboats. so you may as well just party to the end. Uh, and this is this was just... Heartbreaking to the prophet that they were not turning to God in their time of judgment. He says in verse 14 then it was revealed in my hearing by the Lord of hosts. Surely for this iniquity there will be no atonement for you. Even to your death says the Lord God of hosts. So we know that this is not speaking specifically about the Assyrian captivity. It's speaking also about a future captivity the Babylonian uh, uh, siege and the destruction that would come from the Babylonians because it was to their death. There was no iniquity there. There was no atonement because the people had sinned too far, gone too long in, in sin without turning to God. They didn't want to hear the word of God. They didn't want to hear the prophets who were proclaiming God's word to them in their day. Matter of fact, Jeremiah was despised and spit upon and thrown into jail and beaten and thrown into the public latrine. He was the only real prophet that was there in Jerusalem during the siege of the Babylonians and they refused to listen. As a matter of fact, they ended up stoning him to death uh, in Egypt. Verse 15. Thus says the Lord God of hosts, go and proceed to this steward, to Shibna, who is over the house, and say, what have you here and whom have you here? That you have hewn out a sepulcher here. And he who hews himself a sepulcher on high, who carves a tomb for himself in a rock. Indeed, the Lord will throw you away violently, O mighty man, and it will surely seize you. He will surely turn violently and toss you like a ball into a large country. There you shall die, and there your glorious chariots shall be the shame of your master's house. Now this individual Shebna uh, was mentioned, actually we read about him earlier when we were reading about the uh, springs of Gihon and them preparing for the siege uh, in Hezekiah's time when the Assyrians were going to besiege them. And this Shebna was, uh, we're, we're told previously he's a scribe, here we're told that he's over the house, and he, this is not a, a Jewish name, so he was a foreigner that was there um, pretty much running the king's house, and uh, really had no business being there. And he was looking to enrich himself, is basically what he was doing. He was building himself a beautiful uh, carved-out sepulcher where the royalty would would put their th- their loved ones, and it would be like a family sort of a plot, like a mausoleum. You could still see these um, these sepulchers ca- carved into the the, the walls uh, or the hills of Jerusalem today. Um, Absalom's tomb and, and, and some of the others they say are there and uh, they would just d- carve out a beautiful um, cave and then they would have little chambers and they would bury their loved ones there and it was for the very wealthy kind of like the Egyptians would do with their pharaohs or the priests uh, who served the pharaohs and so forth it was a thing that they did in ancient times for the wealthy people so that their name would be remembered for a long time. And God's calling this guy out. He's like, who are you? Why are you doing this? Who do you think you are? You think you're somebody rich. You're somebody powerful. Uh, and, and you're going to you know be remembered here forever. And God says, I'm going to cast you out. You're going to die uh, in a foreign land. And all of your money and your chariots and your uh, powerful position here uh, will, will be to the shame of your master's house. And so there's no record of what happened to Shibna, but... Uh, apparently uh, the Lord drove him out of the land and he died in a foreign land. Verse 19, So I will drive you out of your office and from your position he will pull you down. Then he changes gears and he starts talking about a faithful servant. uh, Eliakim, verse 20, Then it shall be in that day that I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Helkiah. I will clothe him with your robe and strengthen him with your belt, and I will commit your responsibility into his hand, and he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Now, Eliakim uh, becomes a shadow or a type of Jesus Christ, as we're going to see here in a minute. Um, the Lord removed the, the wicked man who was selfish that was in the king's house and raised up a servant of God, uh, and uh, Eliakim was was a real person. We read about him uh, in the uh, book of the Kings and the Chronicles. And he was there actually when the Assyrians were besieging the city walls. He was one of the spokespersons for Hezekiah who was uh, speaking to the Rebeksha on behalf of the king. He says, um, verse 22, The key of the house of David I will lay on his shoulder, so he shall open and no one shall shut, and he shall shut and no one shall open. I will fasten him as a peg in a secure place and he will become a glorious throne to his father's house. So now he pivots and this is a prophecy concerning the Messiah Jesus Christ because Jesus uses this same phrase uh, of himself about the the one who would open and no one would shut and he would shut and no one will open. In Revelation chapter 3 Verses 7 and 8, we read this. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. And so Jesus assigns this prophecy to himself. And again, a lot of the prophecies in the Old Testament had double meaning or even more than two meanings. There was a local fulfillment and then future fulfillment, sometimes numerous future fulfillments. And so this is now speaking of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Um, Again, Isaiah 22, uh, uh, 22, the key of the house of David, I'll lay on his shoulder, remember Isaiah 9, 6, unto us, A child is born unto us, a son is given. The government will be upon his shoulder. His name shall be uh, called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And he's called a a glorious peg. He's called a a, a peg that is fastened in a secure place and and he'll have a glorious throne to his father's house. Verse 24, And they will hang on him all the glory of his father's house, the offspring and the posterity, all the vessels of small quantity, from the cups to the pitchers, and that day says the Lord of hosts that the peg, the peg that is fastened in the secure place will be removed and be cut down and fall. And the burden that was on it will be cut off for the Lord has spoken. And so it's speaking of the one who would come who would die. The Messiah who would come, who would be rejected by his own people. He came into his own, and his own received him not. Daniel prophesied in Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 to 27, when he was talking about the 70 weeks that the Messiah will come, and he will be cut off, he'll be rejected. We also read in Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 8, speaking of the Messiah, the one who would come to be the suffering servant, the Lamb of God who would die for the sins of the world. Isaiah 53, verse 8. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his who will declare his generation? He, for he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgressions of my people, he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the but he was with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his right hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities and indeed he did he hung on the cross and he bore the iniquities of us all the sins of the world not just the nation of israel not just the nation of judah but for the sins of the whole world and he died in our place he took the punishment that we deserve and he died and he was cut off he was broken off he was killed and yet he was raised from the dead on the third day and uh, he still it's by his knowledge of my righteous servant Shall justify the many, and he shall bear their iniquities. And so, I would encourage you: we are living in the last days. It's not time to be playing church. It's not time to be looking to get your ears tickled or my ears tickled. People just telling us what we want to hear. There's a lot of deception out there right now. We have to be so careful to test every voice by the word of God, and uh, and the Lord will deliver us. We just have to stick with Him, and He will stick with us. That's what He does. We're His people. Uh, And he is our God, and he will never leave you nor forsake you. Shall we pray? Lord, we do thank you that you have conquered sin, and you have conquered death, and you have conquered Satan, and you have conquered hell. We thank you, Lord God, that by your knowledge, Lord, you are the righteous one, and by your knowledge, you will justify the many, Lord. We thank you for your justification. Lord, we thank you that you wash us white as snow. Lord, we know that we are wicked. Lord, we know that we are sinners, Father. We confess that to you tonight. Lord, there is none righteous, no, not one. And so, Father, we thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your compassion. We thank you for your strength, Lord. I pray that you would strengthen your people, Lord. I pray you would continue to encourage your people, Father, that we would not put our eyes on man, Lord. We would keep our eyes on only the God-man, Jesus Christ, knowing, Lord, that no matter what is coming, no matter what we face as a nation, Lord, that you will always be there, right there with us, Lord. Help us to abide in you. Help us to stick close to you, Lord. And please use us in these last days, we pray. Bless your people. Keep them safe. Watch over our church family. If you have questions, comments, and prayer requests, email us at podcast at gmail.com. We would be honored to pray for you, as we hope you are praying for us. Good day and God bless from City on a Hill Church, Tehachapi, California.